This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Episode 96 of the Equalizer podcast here on President's Day weekend, and it is a special edition of the Equalizer podcast as we take a deep dive into the equal pay lawsuit filed by the U.S. women's national team against their bosses from U.S. soccer. I'm Dan Lawletta. Chelsea Bush is here, and also with us this weekend is Kelsey Trainer, a lawyer and writer who will try her best to shed some light on uh, some of the legal goings-on between the team and the federation chelsea how are you today i'm good dan and uh kelsey appreciate you being with us today how are you um you want to just quickly introduce yourself tell us a little bit about you hey yeah thank you guys for uh, having me on today um i am a lawyer i work in tv and film and i write about sports from a legal perspective um trying to shed some insight and explain things in a way that uh the legal world often doesn't do. Um, and so I write on a bunch of issues, including Title IX and equal pay, um, et cetera. And there's at least one post of yours already on equalizersoccer.com, so check that out. Uh, but as we begin, just, um, you know, this has been an issue for a long time. There's been a lot of different filings and settlements, and that we, I think a lot of us thought the CBA agreement might have been the end of the line but it wasn't just tell us kind of where we are right now in the process u.s women's national team versus u.s soccer so right now in the process we are headed to the may 20th trial date um the in earlier or at the end of last year the uh players achieved class certification so that means that the 28 players who actually filed the suit more players were able to be added into it and put themselves in a position similarly situated to the original 28 players. So it goes back to, I believe it's June of 2015. Um, those players that were on the U.S. women's national team in a shape or form um, are now in the lawsuit as well. So the, some new additions are Abby Wambach, Hope Solo, Heather O'Reilly. Um, and what ha- uh something kind of very interesting happened recently in that U.S. soccer was, you know, originally they were how they would notify these players that they could opt into this lawsuit was very old fashioned mailing out letters, you know, snail mail. Um, and the players had a bunch of issues with actually getting the correct addresses. You know, it's it's 2020. So the idea that some of the addresses that U.S. soccer had on file for these players um, were a bit outdated. So uh, a new update was that the players were now allowed to um, uh, email out notices to Hope Solo, Abby Wambach, U.S. Soccer, obviously, uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation obviously objected to um, Hope Solo 
being notified and emailed because she has her own uh, lawsuit in the Northern District of California, whereas this lawsuit is in the Central District of California. Um, so we have discovery will be ending soon. Discovery is what the, the time period where both sides exchange documents back and forth. Um, sometimes they have to exchange documents and emails and all that fun stuff that they don't want to exchange, but the legal process um, requires it. And, um, you know, there's a few depositions left to be taken uh, from players who are currently playing for the for the U.S. Women's National Team. And on February 20th, I believe, is the deadline for when either side can file a motion for summary judgment. And so that means that, you know, a jury trial would take place in May. Um, a motion for summary judgment would be something that would decide a lot of issues of law or actually uh, decide parts of the case should the judge decide to do so without a jury involved. Um, so that's kind of where we are in the status of the case right now. Um, it's It's been interesting. There's just been a lot of filings back and forth. Um, the sides are, are working together, you know, decently as you, as you usually would see in a, in a case with, you know, big named attorneys on both sides. Um, but it's it's kind of gone back and forth and preparing for this May 20th trial date. So, Kelsey, I have a question about the class certification. What is kind of the benefit of that besides the fact that obviously should they get a ruling in their favor, this affects more players? Yeah, I mean, the benefit of it is, is it affects more players um, and it, they get back pay, right? So part of the ability to... Um, join in a class is that you now are in the same position as if you had filed the lawsuit. Um, and there's a process that goes into deciding whether a, a class should be certified. And that is whether the players would be similarly situated. That's whether they would have the same argument. So if you have a Heather O'Reilly, you don't want to have her kind of go filing her own lawsuit when she could just join in this one. So it's, it is about judicial economy and efficiency but in terms of the players, it puts them in the same position as if they had been a part of the case from the original filing. And so if uh, something happens in favor of the, the players, um, then those new additional players would be granted um, back pay or liquidated damages. So does it does it strengthen their side of the lawsuit at all? Or is it just, hey, the, we think these players were affected as well? Um. Strengthen is a it strengthens it and then you have a, a some more powerful women involved. Um, but it really is kind of just about adding numbers. And you see this a cl you see class certifications in a lot of these um, big products liability cases. You know, uh, I'm trying to think of an example like asbestos or mesothelioma, something like that, where you know some product was wrong. Uh, and, you know, caused harm to people. And so instead of having, you know, 1,000 lawsuits against the product, you one or two people file and then you certify it as a class. And so that everyone else, if the result is positive and in their favor, everyone else will be part of that class and will receive compensation as a part of that. Do those players, Kelsey, have to opt in in order to reap the rewards? Or could it be like where I get a check in the mail for 82 cents because I bought a mattress and there was a class action suit against the mattress company and, and it was found in my favor and I had nothing to do with it. 
<laughs> right. So, yes. Yeah, so this is an opt in. You have to opt in. Uh, what you're talking about does is another uh, way that class uh, actions and class um, statuses is obtained. But this is a case where the players have to opt in and the deadline to opt in now has been extended for the e- people that are now allowed to be emailed. That's been extended till March 30th. Um, so we'll know fully by March 30th everyone who is in this lawsuit. Um, at the end of the day, there's no real reason not to opt in. Um, so I don't anticipate that any of the players have, won't opt in. And I believe that of the filing in early January from the players was that there was about 12 people who had not opted in yet. And those 12 people were, you know, Hope Solo, Cindy LaRue, um, Heather O'Reilly, and, um, likely because they weren't notified the correct way. And I'm curious, I have no idea if you would know this or not, if, that only is open to players who were had a, had a contract with U.S. Soccer at some point, or if it's to any player who got any sort of compensation by U.S. Soccer during that time period. My understanding of reading through the opt-in is that is if you played for you like played in a, a match with U.S. Soccer, but I I, I don't quote me on that. Um, there is a, a standard that I, I don't believe was in the publicly available uh, record. Because part of the part of this uh, case is sealed. There are certain documents, um, as far as the discovery process goes, that not everybody can see. Kelsey and uh, Kelsey Trainer is with us today. She is um, the newest member of Equalizer Soccer, and uh, she's our uh, legal analyst, I suppose, and, and might be doing some <laughs> other work for us going forward. But Kelsey, uh, I think most people listening to this podcast especially, have the opinion that, of course, the women should get equal pay. Why is this even an issue? Why is it going to court? It's a no-brainer. But from a legal perspective, give us a sense of, you know, where do you believe the case stands? And is it as, uh, is the case as rock solid as it would seem on moral grounds? Right. So it's so interesting because from a legal perspective, it's not easy to compare from a numbers standpoint. So because of the difference of the contracts and how the men's and the women's players are paid, it's really hard on paper to find a way to compare it that um, is comparing apples to apples. So I think that's why, um, you know, I've heard a lot of pundits talk about this, but I think that's why from Uh, a legal perspective, it doesn't appear to be totally black and white. Um, I do think from a, you know, and part of a a, part of the legal process is understanding that, you know, it's a cost benefit, right? And so the U.S. Soccer Federation, they just, they're taking a beating. They do not look good. The men's team, the men's players uh, union just came out with a, a statement and, um, that's part of the strategy is how much money do you spend on litigating a case when you could probably settle it and not set a legal precedence of equal pay? Um, you could settle it for less money than you're actually uh, paying, you know, to actually litigate the lawsuit. Um, so I do think at the end of the day that it will come out in favor of the of the women's team, the players. Um, but I don't know that it will be decided on 
legally, to be quite honest. I believe that they'll probably settle. Now, let's say that it does go to court and you say you think it would come out on the side of the players. Is this a scenario where the players ask for one thing and the Federation asks for another and it's one or the other? Or is there a middle ground possible? Um, no, I mean, it, it would be the findings of, the, you know, they've asked for a jury trial. So it would be the findings of the court, whether or not there was um, unequal pay and whether or not there was uh, discrimination based on gender. Um, and from that, that would be the law, essentially. And obviously, it, it would be appealed. Um, whatever side loses would appeal it. So once the trial happens, it's not over. It's still, you know, two to three years after that before, you know, kind of anything is really decided. Um, but if this is not settled, and if it is decided in a court of law, at least at the initial phase, it will be monumental either way that it's decided, because it will set a precedent legally about whether or not these, um, you know, equal pay lawsuits to this degree. So with, you know, professional players and, and unions, and you've got, you know, all these different ones, it will, it will set a precedent for whether or not there's a pay scale and system that requires a, a certain level of equality. Is the fact that this is athletics, where I think we can all agree that there are significant differences athletically between men and women, is that, that going to make it a slightly different case than most other or pretty much any other profession where there really aren't any differences? I understand what you're saying. You're saying about the, the, the differences physically, right, between a man and a woman. Well, like if I get um, your lawyer job, we're, the, we're just lawyers. But in right. an athletic field, in theory, you know, the men have the advantage. And it's, and it's you know, like, I mean, they don't, they don't compete against each other for a reason. Right. So the kind of the best answer to that is that in the eyes of the law, um, the only real difference that – uh, you can that there can be differences in man and woman in any workplace is a woman having a baby and a, and a man not like scientifically being able to. Um, and so the physicality uh, won't necessarily have something to do with it in a you know apples to apples comparison. Um, while it's noted, the fact that they are still doing uh, similar work, um, is what's going to be kind of the baseline decider. All right, we've got more questions for Kelsey Trainer coming up about the equal pay lawsuit, U.S. women's national team against U.S. soccer. Court date set for May 20th. Uh, we've got Kelsey thinks that it'll probably settle before that, and that it might be leaning in favor of the women's national team. We'll come back with more questions on the other side. This is episode 96 of the Equalizer podcast. Episode 96, Equalizer Podcast, Segment 2, Dan with Chelsea and Kelsey Trainer, lawyer and writer from the New York City area who is uh, here to discuss the U.S. Women's Soccer Equal Pay Lawsuit. And a uh, reminder before we get back to questions for Kelsey that you can check us out on the web at EqualizerSoccer.com and for premium content, EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. And also a reminder to please rate and review the Equalizer Podcast 
today. Again, on the web, EqualizerSoccer.com. Premium content, EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. Kelsey, uh, last thing you said, you used the term comparing apples to apples. Um, the one other side of this argument is that the women actually have protections in their CBA that the men don't have. They have guaranteed contracts. They have a lot of you know, things about how many camps they can be in, how many players can come in to, to challenge them for their positions. Is that something they would have to give up in order to achieve equal pay? Or is that a, is that a separate issue that, that is something they negotiate individually that's not part of equal pay? Yeah, so it is, it's really tough to, com- to, to compare the two because, um, you know, like you said, the women have certain uh, protections in their, their contracts. And that kind of brings me into, I might be jumping ship a little bit here, but that brings me into the, uh, the recent statement issued by the, the men's union and their players. Um, and the idea of the comparing of the deals and how they're structured and, you know, where the U.S. Soccer Federation actually gets their money from, right? So they, the most of their money becomes from um, games played, right, and sponsorships. But there's no way, real way, uh, they don't, the U.S., that they don't track where the sponsorships, right? They don't track how much comes in for who, right? Is it for the men or for the women's team? I'm sure they might, um, but they that's not publicly available and they're not going to admit that anywhere because um, especially after, you know, the women won the world cup in 2015 uh, there was an uptick in sponsorships uh, revenue that way. Um, So in terms of comparing the, uh, the men's and the women's their, their CBAs are essentially so different. Um, You, you really can't. Um, but I also think that's kind of where the law comes into play, right? So the the claims in this case, you have the Equal Pay Act claim, right? So that's equal pay for equal work. Um, and so if you're doing a, the substantially equal work on the job and the performance is substantially the same, that's where this claim comes in. Um, and so if there's similar working conditions, right, if they're playing – um, which in this case, there probably isn't similar working conditions because the women play, um, you know, on artificial services more compared to the men. Um, as long as all of those things are true and a woman was paid at a lower wage than the man, um, then that's a violation of the, the Equal Pay Act. Um, and then also under the Title um, VII Civil Rights Act, um, that's gender discrimination, right? So in that case, they're trying to prove that there are certain things done um, to women compared to the men, i.e. there's difference in travel conditions, there's a drif- difference in accommodations and playing services. Um, and so when you look at it from a revenue standpoint, it's not necessarily easy to compare. But if you look at it under the law, um, it's a pretty decent case that the women have in terms of what they've received compared to the men. Now, how would this um, how would this apply to the World Cup? Let's say both the men and women won their respective World Cups. Funny, I know men can't even qualify. Right, at the right. Moment, but the, <laughs> He's the got men jokes would, on a Sunday, right? <laughs> exactly. But the men would get thirty million or whatever it is, and the women would get eight. I'm throwing. I don't know the numbers. I'm just throwing out the numbers. I know there's a very big difference. Would that money have to be pooled together, or is this only 
money paid directly to the players by U.S. soccer for things that U.S. soccer controls. Yeah, it would be the, the, the latter about U.S. soccer control because the reality of the fact that the Men's World Cup, the pool of money of which they're drawing from there, is substantially higher than the pool from the Women's World Cup. Um, so that's kind of been left out. If you look at the complaint, if you look at any of the um, filings in this case, those aren't necessarily the numbers that are talked about. Um, it's not like, oh, hey, the the they're paid this much from the World Cup. It's no, they've been doing this work um, under these conditions. We both work for the same people. And we are actually producing revenue in, in some instances above the men. And we're still not receiving the same um, conditions. Um, so that's the World Cup side of it, I think, is it's it's pretty obvious that it's uh, important kind of when you think about the whole big picture. But in terms of this lawsuit, um, it's not necessarily um, as important. So, Kelsey, I want to go back to something you said in the previous segment, and that's about um, Hope Solo. So, as you mentioned, she does have her own lawsuit. If she chooses to opt into this, can she still maintain both of them? I'll admit I don't know much about her her own lawsuit, but I'm just curious if she can have kind of two at the same time. Right. So, normally you can't. <laughs> um, her lawsuit has... Um, is similar, but it's it's not the exact same claim. So I believe that she has um, uh, equal pay act claim, but I don't believe that she has a uh, a Title Seven claim. Um, and essentially, though, what would happen is that any decision. So her trial is not scheduled till I believe November. Um, any decision that is made in this case, whether it be a settlement, whether it be from a jury or a judge on su- summary judgment. Um, any de- any decision that way will have an effect on her case. Um, and just in terms of the cost benefit of litigating, um, anything favorable to the you know the 28 plus women's national team players, um, anything favorable to them, um, U.S. the soccer federation would be crazy to not uh, kind of offer her something for that case as well. Or the judge in that case would say that you know, on one, uh, say the equal pay at claim that that decision's already been decided. So it has a precedential effect there. So essentially the wall of this case would become the wall of that case, um, for her claim, for that claim at least. Um, so it would, Hope Solo is in, is in a interesting position because it, obviously remember she wanted to be a part of this, right? Um, she wanted to be a part of the mediation process and then, um, you know, kind of that whole quote came out, I guess, uh, where the more Alex Morgan and all the other plaintiffs were just basically said, uh, we don't need you. Um, but yet here she is. She's, she's here. <laughs> she's always here. Right. She's always here. Um, May 20th is the trial date. Is that, you know, two, three week trial and we get an answer or could this be delayed and adjourned to some degree and we're right smack in the middle of it during Tokyo this summer? That's a very interesting question, and it's honestly up in the air. You know, any trial experience I've had is that um, it never happens when it's supposed to happen. And if it does, then that's just kind of a small miracle. Um, But the judge in this case is is, he's pretty hard on some of the deadlines. Um, So there was a discovery dispute where, you know, the players wanted more information or they wanted to ask more questions. And 
the judge's decision came down, I believe, last week, and he essentially said, uh, yeah, no, this is the, the deadline for this was such and such a date, and at this point, you're late. You had your time to do it, um, you know, we're moving forward. Um, but still, the practicalities and the realities of uh, trying a case in federal court of this magnitude, um, in my mind, means that there will likely be some delay. Um, but don't let the judge hear me say that because judges like to have their, uh, you know, their their timelines and they like to have, you know, at least think that they're going to be abided by. Um, but I do think there's a chance that some of this is um, either right before, um, most likely after Tokyo, to be honest, because um, the very real the reality of them having to play a world, uh, an Olympics would be, you know, sufficient excuse of why uh, some of them couldn't be at a trial. Um, and so, it, it, you know, I could see it being delayed until after that. It's a pretty good reason, I suppose, for not being right. at a trial. Right. <laughs> this will obviously have major repercussions across the soccer landscape. How closely do you think other sports entities and sports teams, especially women's national teams, are paying attention here to hopefully latch on to a precedent? Right. I mean, they have to be. Um, it is a time in women's sports, and I think this is the the spearhead of it, is this lawsuit. Um, but you see we have the WNBA with their new collective bargaining agreement. Now, that had nothing to do with the federation, but that also was, you know, the players essentially saying, no, here's what we deserve, here's our worth. And, you know, the, the NBA has an uh, investment in the WNBA. They're basically the founders and, and owners of it. Um, so um, I think that women's sports leagues and teams and uh, uh you know, different players associations have to be following this closely because good or bad, it will affect them immensely. Just a couple more for you, Kelsey. Um, sometimes you hear, well, the women should make more because they are better than the men, relatively speaking. And I always say that's a dangerous road to go down because one day that could flip around and you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. Uh, but I guess my question coming off of that is, you know, from the public perspective, the fact that the women have now won the last two World Cups, I think, really boosts their case. And that's in the court of public opinion. Does that right. have any bearing whatsoever on this case? Uh, I, the, I think the court of public opinion always has a bearing on any case. Um, I mean, the fact that they it, won the last two World Cups, is that in all a factor in how this will turn out? It's a factor in the their arguments of in terms of, I guess, revenue, right? But we kind of talked about that before is where's the revenue coming from? So if the revenue is kind of coming from the pooling of the World Cup and, and the money that you're able to win from winning it, it's not necessarily, you know, this great argument. But if you're talking about the revenue and the sponsorships that it's bringing in that way to the U.S. Soccer Federation, um, then it's very interesting. I mean, I think you had recently where the um, the qualifying uh, games for what was it? Uh, Concaf came on, and uh, yeah. we didn't. There, yeah, there wasn't a TV deal until about two days before, or even a day before. Right, which is not and a U.S. soccer. That's a Concacaf right, thing now. Right, but part of that was that there was this notion of pool of using the women's team and their success to group the men's deal into that, 
right? So even though that may not necessarily be the same as, you know, they're not dealing with the U.S. Soccer Federation, it does give you this idea of the women being this successful commodity and that they are bringing in a revenue um, and have this impact to, to bring this in and kind of be a negotiating and a bargaining tool. Now, let's say it goes to court and the women win, players win, and they get all the same payment for anything U.S. soccer related as the men get. Is there then the opportunity for the men to go and say, well, wait a minute now, we're all equal. Women have the She Believes Cup where they get paid for three friendlies in a week without having to leave the country. We want that too. Like, is there another side of this if the women, I guess that's piggybacking on my question about contracts, but is, would that be a valid counterpoint for the men then? I mean, to an extent, but I think you have to remember that with any um, like gender discrimination or Equal Pay Act, um, the, the, the purposes behind those law, those laws were the fact that you know, women up until a certain point in history were considered property, right? They couldn't earn money. They needed their husband's permission before they could sign a contract. So all of those things were put into place, um, you know, even Title IX, you know, the fact that women were not, like, the colleges didn't even have to have women's sports teams. Um, and so I think those laws uh, really work on protecting the fact that women and women's sports um, and just women in the workplace in general really, you know, were about 100 or 200 years behind in terms of having rights at all. Um, so to an extent that, you know, the men could ask for that and, you know, they could contract it, they, there, there's an argument. But in terms of, um, you know, I don't think you'll be seeing a lawsuit over it. Great stuff, Kelsey. We've got one more segment left. A couple questions uh, from Twitter and maybe we can talk a little soccer. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. This is uh, episode 96 of the Equalizer podcast. Episode 96 of the Equalizer podcast, third and final segment, Dan with Chelsea Bush and Kelsey Trainer, And it's time for the Equalizer Soccer Sports Reference Stat of the Week, brought to you by our friends at Sports Reference. Check out their ever-growing catalog of women's sports statistics at fbref.com. That's fbref.com. And with a little help from Kelsey this week, our stat of the week says that if the men and the women U.S. soccer teams played 20 friendly matches on equal terms as their contracts are today the women would receive 38 percent less compensation for those friendlies than their male counterparts that's 38 percent less over a period of 20 friendlies that's not qualifiers or world cups or olympics but 20 friendlies sanctioned by u.s soccer women would receive 38 percent less over the course of 20 Friendlies. That's our Equalizer Soccer Sports Reference Stat of the Week brought to us by our friends at Sports Reference. Check them out at fbref.com. All right, Kelsey, we are coming to you hard in with a couple of good questions this week from Twitter. Siobhan Mack, what's your take on the U.S. MNT statement after all this time? Some say the timing is suspect as their negotiations have stalled. Go ahead. Uh, my take is that it is entirely self-serving statement, right? So they're uh, in the midst of negotiation for their own CBA, and it's they're obviously not getting what they want. 
Um, and so they come out with this statement that on its face, right, looks great. It says statement about the U.S. Women's National Team 2017 to 2021 CBA. Um, and at the end, they say, talk to, you know, the Federation, talk to the your uh, officials everywhere. Tell them that there should be equal pay. But if you actually read the statement, um, everything in it is self-serving. So they're arguing that the women should be paid at least three times the amount of um the 2011 to 2017 CBA. Well, that works out really nicely for them because if that's what the women should have been made, should have been paid, um, then they are going to make the argument that they should also be made at least three, be making at least three times more. Um, you know, in it, they talk about how they, um, you know, have, you know, let the women negotiate for themselves and how they've not spoken out on anything um, until now. But, you know, it's, it's pretty it's pretty telling that everything in it um, is is helpful to them, right? So they talk about that the Federation uses players' names, images, likeness to create these implied endorsements. Well, if that's out there and that public perception is out there and that ends up in any court document somewhere, um, the men are going to be arguing for more money for any of the players' images, names that and likenesses that are being used. Um, and so, you know, every headline I read on this uh, on this statement was, oh, the, the, you know, the men's players are demanding three times the amount and equal pay, um, which I technically they are. But um, it's a bit too late and it's entirely um, self-serving. It is something that's it looks nice, but it's, it's kind of a, a mask and it's um, a little bit of a masquerade, I think. All right, Ted Sarvata, the letter from the men talked about the women being coerced into signing a bad labor agreement. Does that argument hold legal water? Can an employer treat two bargaining units differently and rely on the agreements as defense? Uh, one, yes, uh, you know, an employer can treat uh, two different uh, contracting parties differently. Um, I don't know that coercion is a, is the right word or the right kind of legal way to go about it. I think if it was, then you would have seen a lawsuit around that. Um, but I think that the, um, I think the equal pay lawsuit is the answer to that. Um, and so if the, the players, they didn't necessarily feel that, um, there was a good, there was good faith on the part of the Federation or that they've been sharing the correct amount of revenue, um, and that there is not a lot of transparency. Um, and so I absolutely right. You know, legally, contractually, you can bargain with both sides. I mean, that that's the goal, right? You want to get the best deal for, for your side. Um, but when these two people happen to work for the same, the same, the Federation and are doing the same work, um, then, you know, that's, that's where the issue comes in. So I think the, the right recourse is the, is the equal pay lawsuits. Can we take the lawyer hat off now and talk a little soccer? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right. Um, how about, well, tell us about your soccer likes, dislikes. I, I mean, we, you know, we kind of discovered you because you tweet a lot about soccer. So, yeah, soccer. so I would say that I, I, I thoroughly enjoy watching it. I played it. Um, I was never as smart of a player um, <laughs> as I would have hoped to be. Um, but I enjoy it. And I've, you know, after moving to New York a few years ago, I've started to, uh, 
you know, become a fan of Sky Blue in the NWSL and, you know, then watching, you know, the World Cups and the Olympics over, over the years. Um, I'm obviously just a fan um, of the game overall in general. I've loved watching the um, the qualifying games and, and all the stuff that the women's team are doing, you know, kind of within the states to showcase it um, and getting to know some of these younger players kind of coming up um in the system. I mean, it's just been so fun to watch. And obviously Carly Lloyd's story is great. Um, and you know, Rose Lavelle, I loved watching her in this world cup and how she kind of just, I mean, she's so fast. Uh, Tobin Heath. I, I don't know that anybody has like a razzle dazzle the way that her legs, um, move. Uh, but you know, those are, those are my general takes. <laughs> are you buying sky blue? I mean, they're obviously going to be better. They got a purse and Zerboni and Mal Pugh. Are you buying that they're contenders or just a little bit better than they were a year ago? You know, I'm going to, I'm just going to throw it out there. Yeah. I think they're contenders. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I just love the leadership of that team and, and what they've been doing, um, you know, off the field as well. And, you know, making the games are now at um, Red Bull. And um, I think that there's a special environment there that whether or not it's this year, um, I think it's set up for success now because obviously it's had a, um, you know, a bit of a shaky past. I, I think they're in the position to be totally set up um, to succeed. I think Chelsea and I would disagree with you that they're contenders, <laughs> but they will certainly be better, I think. Chelsea, am I, am I right about that? Yeah, I, I think that's where I'm. They're obviously improved, and I, I agree with Kelsey that they're they're definitely trending in the right direction. And some some things could come into play down the road that could make them contenders. I, I don't. It's it, kind of hard to see, you know without maybe seeing everyone how they take the field so far. But right now, I still think I'd have them outside the my, the playoff picture. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like we'll have to redo this uh, this trio again, maybe about halfway through the season. Right. It looks like we're going to have to, you know, maybe wager on it. You know, of course, legally, but. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> Some type of something. <laughs> no illegal wagers with a lawyer. I don't think right. that's a good idea. Right, right. A um, couple of retirements rolled in. I don't know if we talked about Jen Hoy. I don't remember when that came out, but Bev Yanez as well. Um, really an example of just a good, solid league player, I think, Chelsea Came up, um, started actually in WPS as Bev Goble, got married, went to Japan, came back as Bev Yanez, and just a real fun player to watch. Like, kind of, I feel like kind of one of those players, Jen Hoy, too, what this league's all about. Yeah, it's kind of the people that the league was was built on. Um, you know, never, never going to be on the national team, but, you know, stuck around when times were a little bit harder than they are now. Um, were reliable, could, you know, particularly in the, in the case of Yanez, was, was counted on to be a starter pretty much every week, was pretty pretty consistent with that. Um, you know, she, the, the things that people have come out and said about her, too, are just one of the nicest p- people you're ever going to meet. And I think on and off the field, she kind of, she kind of lived up to that. And um, I always thought she was a little bit underrated, so I, I would be sad to see her, her go. Um, Jen Hoy is, is, again, is someone that the league's built on because she wasn't always a starter. And she kind of to to be able to be willing to ride the bench in, in the league in your your home country rather than where she could have gone anywhere you know most other places in the world and been a consistent starter um, to me I think you know, we can't do without those kind of people. 
Now, I have a question for both of you. Ooh, turning um, the tables. Oh, I like right, it. Right. Um, watching the Conclave qualifying uh, tournament, who is the player that has surprised you the most and that you think um, might have, you know, earned their way or at least has really solidified uh, a conversation for making the, uh, the Olympic team? I think Dan and I were probably going to have the same answer. Um, if I could guess, I'd say probably Lynn Williams. Um, yeah. As opposed to someone who wasn't already really securely in the team. I did see earlier today that the her W League side, Western Sydney Wonders, have officially released her, so she must be on the She Believes roster. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason. I mean, there's bigger roster, so there's no reason she wouldn't be. I mean, I think Press is the player that, like, enhanced her status, but I don't, I don't think she was a bubble player at this point. Right. So, yeah, I think... And maybe Emily Sonnet, even though she's not spectacular, but she's getting these minutes. And she got on the team over Casey Short. So I don't think that either Chelsea or I are huge Emily Sonnet fans, but she seems to be higher on the depth chart than we would think. Yeah, I thought Lynn Williams was so – I was so impressed. And it was so fun to watch uh, her in these games and and getting these minutes and and seeing what she could do. I mean, even, you know – things that she wasn't kind of actively involved in. She just had such a presence out there. Um, so, so I'm going to agree with both of you on that one. <laughs> and if she could ever find, I, if, first of all, she could figure out how to finish on a consistent basis. She would be, she would, I think she could then compete with the Sam Kerr numbers in terms of goal scoring. Right. But she's also a really good passer. And for some reason she doesn't get enough credit for how good a passer she is. I think because she's always quick and trying to, and is in behind all the time. Sometimes we see her missing a lot of chances. Yeah, I'm with you. Her passing, I, I was re- I was just impressed overall. Um, you know, every time her name was said and, you you know, watching her, you know, there's a, I forget, I can't think of it in my mind, but there was a, a there was a play that um, I guess she had an assist on a goal on it. Um, it was just yeah, incredible. In the last game? Yeah. Yeah, in the Canada. I was going to reference that too, but I couldn't remember who scored the goal, so I decided not to. Right, right. I forget who scored it as well, but it was just an incredible pass. pass, And to me, it was just, you know, she was there, she was in that position, and, um, you know, I don't don't know that everyone else could have done it. Maybe they could have, but certainly made a name for herself even more in the tournament. How about Allie Riley coming back to the U.S.? Ooh. I'm so excited. Yeah, fill me in. I'm not. I'm not up to date on it. On this. All right. Well, Allie Riley. If you go all the way back to 2010, 2010 was the most epic draft ever. The one, two, three, four picks in that draft were, um, wow. Who was number one? Tobin Heath, Lauren Cheney, who's now Lauren Holiday, right? uh, Kelly O'Hara, Whitney Ingen, all 2015 World Cup members. Ashlyn Harris was in that draft. Bev Goble was in that draft. Bev Giannis. Rookie of the year was actually Allie Riley for FC Gold Pride. And then when uh, the league folded, she went to Europe and never came back. And now here she is at age 32. And she also was not looked at by the U.S. youth teams and wound up in New Zealand. Now she's the captain of the New Zealand national team. Uh, But she's finally coming back. She'll be an outside back in Orlando. Orlando, right? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't think she's in her prime anymore. But I think it's it's a good signing for Orlando. I think it should be um, an upgrade for them. The downside is that she's obviously likely to be at the Olympics, so you, you have a potential of, of losing all, if not, or at least most of Orlando's backline. So that's a consideration. 
But I used to, back in the day when she um, was really coming up, I used to kind of think of like, oh, we could have like an alley and alley tandem on the outside with the U.S. If, if only they had paid attention to her. <laughs> um, because I've always felt that the U.S., for the most part, has kind of had a revolving door at left back. And I thought that she and her and her prime was, was a really, really, really good outside back. I still think she's really good. Um, but alas, it was not meant to be. Maybe so maybe we we'll see it at Orlando. Orlando. Maybe we'll yeah. see. I don't know. When we talked a couple of days ago, Chelsea, like their back line could be okay. Yeah, like I and, said, uh, most if not all of them are going to end up at the Olympics, so that says something. Um, it's right. just a matter of of can they? You know, Orlando's problem has always been they've had decent pe- individual pieces, but they haven't really worked, you know, coherently. So it's can they form a good unit? Who's going to be kind of the leader, the anchor of that back line and step up? Um, I'm curious, really, to see where Sonnet and Krieger play if they go to their more traditional positions, I would say, or if what we saw with the national team is kind of where they're going to be going forward. And then also what, you know, who their subs are and how they can step up, you know, players like Presley or Pickett, probably how they can step up when um, all those other players are gone. Krieger and Sonnet might also be competing for the last spot on the uh, Olympic team. Yeah. And I would, I kind of would think, whoever doesn't make that was probably going to be an alternate. So they could still both be gone. Although right. I suspect that maybe if Krieger doesn't make it, he may just go with someone kind of younger as an alternate, just to kind of get them in there. Cause frankly, the alternate doesn't matter a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. I don't ever remember an alternate getting in the, in the team. I, I think maybe if you take like a player that maybe has some physical issues, then you, would take Krieger, but if not, then yeah, maybe you take a younger player. Maybe you take Casey Short if she's not going to make it and see. Because yeah, I think, I think if, that's a mystery to all of us right now. Yeah, I guess we'll have to kind of see what how minutes play out over she believes in the next couple of friendlies. But I suspect that if Short doesn't make it, she's not going to be an alternate either. That's just kind of my, my gut feeling. Kelsey, any parting thoughts? Oh, man. <laughs> no, I mean, I haven't. No, I guess the lawsuit is, um, we'll see. There's going to be a lot happening between now and May. Um, so even in the next week or so, I would be on the lookout. Um, you know, when a motion for summary judgment is filed, a brief is filed with it. Um, and so that's going to lay out some legal arguments and some new information that's been gained from the discovery phase. So I think there's going to be a bit more talk surrounding it um, in the next few weeks. Um, so just, I guess, be on the lookout, you know, we'll, we'll have something here for, uh, the equalizer. Any parting, anything parting soccer wise? Uh, go USA. <laughs> Kelsey, by the way, I've known Kelsey now for what, about six weeks. Yeah. And, a long uh, time. You're, yeah, exactly. You're now my official legalese to English dictionary. Thank you so much. I, 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 tr- I try. <laughs> there's something I don't understand, I can ask you and you'll put it in English terms for me. Right. right. If there's something I don't understand, too, I just Google it. <laughs> <laughs> you just probably know the better places to go for that information. Right. right. All right. Well, thanks a lot for uh, being with us, and we look forward to having you work with us going forward. Thank you guys for having me. All right, Chelsea, I'll catch you soon. Everybody enjoy their uh, President's Day and uh, holiday week if you get it. And uh, this has been episode 96 of, oh, one last thing. Cautiously optimistic, we'll have a schedule to talk about by the next podcast. This has been episode 96 of the Equalizer podcast.